here we are on Palm Sunday, and we're going to be in Isaiah 53 this morning, which is not a traditional uh, Palm Sunday service, but what we're focusing on this year is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. And this morning, we're going to look at the Lamb who was promised. My wife and I, we traveled to Thailand one year when our two oldest girls were quite young, and it was Chinese New Year, and it was very cold where we lived. And we wanted to go out somewhere where it was a bit warmer for a few weeks. And so through the internet, my wife found a small bungalow near the beach that looked quite nice. Uh, The price was decent. And uh, it came with a small private pool that just was just right outside the front door of the bungalow. And we were really excited for our vacation. And so the day came when we flew to Thailand. We got off the, the, the airplane there at the airport in Bangkok. And the van pulled up to a to pick us up and to take us to this place. It was four and a half hours away. And so we're in the van and we drive up to this, uh, we, we got up out of the van and then the van left. You know, cause you're kind of like struggling, getting all your stuff out of the van. You got two young kids and we were standing there looking at a rundown bungalow with no air conditioning that had a small private pool with dark green water inside of it. <laughs> the bungalow itself was, was infested with mosquitoes. And it was so late in the day that there was no way that we could find other accommodations. So Rachel and I, we, we really tried to stay positive. We're like, oh, we can make this work. You know, we're just, we're going to figure out a way to, to, to make this bungalow shack work. But we had been completely duped by the pictures that we had seen on the internet and the description. And we didn't know what to do. And we were a little bit despondent. And so the next day, the girls were down playing at the beach in the sand. And Rachel was there with them. And I just took a walk down the beach, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do here. I got about half a mile down the beach, and there was this small resort hotel that I came upon. And on a whim, I was like, this is the busiest time of the year. There's no way they're going to have a room. But I went up to the front desk anyway. And I said, do you happen to have a room? And they said, we just had a cancellation for one room. And I was like, that's fantastic. How much is it? And they're like, they told me the price, and I was like, I'll book it right now. And so here I booked this hotel, I booked this room. I, I, I'm very excited. I walked back down the beach to tell Rachel, like, hey, I found this room. Uh, we're going to move hotels. Because at this point in time, I'm willing to double pay for a hotel. You have to understand, I'm, I'm going to pay for the, for, the bungalow, for the bungalow shack. I'm going to pay for this new hotel. And we're going to have a good vacation. So we went back to the, uh, to the bungalow, talked to the manager, and he said, no problem, you can check out early and move down to the other hotel. And so we didn't have to pay for the extra hotel, we moved down to a better place, had a great vacation, had a great pool right on the beach, and here we are. We end up getting a way better experience than we could have possibly imagined. And I'm wondering this morning if you have ever had a similar situation where disaster seems inevitable. I mean, almost from the start, you just look at it, you're like, this is going to be disastrous. And just as things look like they cannot recover and they cannot get any better, the situation turns around. And it ends up way better than you could ever have imagined. Well, in our passage this morning that we're going to be reading from Isaiah 53, we're going to see that the innocent, suffering servant, who is foretold by Isaiah more than 700 years before his birth, was despised and rejected. He suffered the punishment for other people's sins. And just as the story reaches the low point of disaster where the innocent servant is killed on behalf of the guilty And then he's buried, we see a glimmer of light. And that glimmer builds into a full shining sun as we see that his death was not only not random, 
but that his death was actually God's plan so that the sin of the guilty would be taken away and so that the servant would become the mediator between God and mankind. So if you would, if you've not already turned to Isaiah 53, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 53 is found on page 613 in the Bible that's there in the chair behind, in front of you. I hope you have a handout as well and able to follow along with the handout. So I'm going to read Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So let's begin by looking at point number one on your handout this morning, the unassuming servant. First, let's see from verse verse number one that the message was announced beforehand. Isaiah 53 starts out by asking two questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What kinds of questions are these? Are we meant to answer these questions? No, these are rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are used to make a point. And the point of these questions in Isaiah is that Isaiah has been announcing the salvation from God that is coming to Israel, but very few people have believed. The arm of the Lord refers to God's strength, which means that even though his saving strength is announced to the people of Israel, only a few have believed. So verse 1 tells us that a message was announced beforehand, but the rhetorical questions show us Isaiah's dismay at the spiritual state of the nation of Israel because they did not believe his message. So looking at point 1b, The servant appeared as a servant. So let's look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In the beginning of verse 2, Isaiah says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. The young plant mentioned here in verse 2 refers to something that is useless. When we try to grow a garden, Do we allow all kinds of random weeds and other random plants to grow in the garden when we're trying to grow something specific? Of course not. Plants that are not useful towards the goal that we're trying to harvest a certain crop, they're pulled up and they're discarded so that our own plants can grow. So even though the servant was like this type of plant that would normally have been discarded, a young plant, God protected the servant. When my children were younger, I remember we planted some bell pepper plants in the backyard of a house that we were staying at in Oklahoma. And admittedly, the the pepper plants were not doing so great. Oklahoma ground can be very dry, especially in the summertime. And if you don't water the plants, they look pretty pathetic. And one day, I remember my dad, he he loves to serve people. He has this big uh, riding mower that he loves to use. And uh, he came over to mow this yellowish green summer grass that we had in the backyard. And I had went away from the house, came back home, and I returned just home just as he was finishing up mowing the lawn. And I walked to the backyard to say thanks to my dad. And there 
where I had planted those bell pepper plants was a completely flat ground. Right? He had mowed straight over my plants. Why? Because I mean, he could really, you really could hardly tell the difference between the overgrown yellow-green grass that had grown in the backyard and my pepper plants that were there. So I wasn't mad at him or anything, but the fact was the ground was dry. And here in the last part of verse 2, it says, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This phrase, the root out of dry ground, it refers to a plant that would not have been much to look at, kind of like my pepper plants, since dry ground, it doesn't nourish plants. So the point of verse 2 here is to highlight this aspect about the servant. He was unassuming. It was both his outward appearance that would not naturally attract anyone to pay attention to him, but also the servant's humility that deflected the attention of the world. The servant appeared as a servant. The world is attracted to strong confidence, but the, but the servant's true beauty, it couldn't be seen with the eyes of the flesh. It had to be seen with a different set of eyes that the world does not naturally have. So not only was the unassuming servant not naturally attractive to the eyes of the flesh, but his outward appearance actually caused the opposite reaction. His outward appearance and inward nature led to him being despised and rejected. So look at me with verse number three again. It says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word grief in the Hebrew here can also be translated into English as the word sickness. And the word sickness in Isaiah is a word picture for sin. So verse 3 is telling us that the servant is a man who is, experiences pain and sin. And the people's response to seeing him experience this pain and the sin is to turn their face away from him and to reject him. But was it his own sin? that caused others to hide his face, to hide their faces from him? As we will see, it was not because of his own sin. By their very nature, servants should be unassuming. Servants cannot be proud people since they do the lowliest of tasks. And there is even some expectation from a worldly perspective that says people who are servants can be treated lower than other people because of the servant's low position. Some would even think that when a servant makes mistakes, the servants can be mistreated. But we would not typically assume that a servant is going to be mistreated because of other people's mistakes. It would be humiliating and wrong to punish a servant for the mistakes that a third party had committed. Would you be willing to endure humiliation for someone else's mistakes? How would you feel if you were mistreated as guilty for someone else's crimes? As we will see in verses 4 through 6, the servant is a suffering servant. But his suffering was not for his own sin. And so we have to ask, for whose sins did he suffer? So let's read verses 4 through 6 together to see what Isaiah says. Starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. There's the word grief again, right? Referring to sickness, which is a word picture for sin. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So looking at point number two, the suffering servant, point A says the servant suffered because of our sin. How do we know that the, suffer, the servant suffered for our sin? Well, we see the source of the griefs and the sorrows here mentioned back in verse three. Here in verse four, these were our griefs. That is our sins. These are our transgressions and not his own. Do you see the irony here? The servant is despised and rejected by the very people whose sin he is suffering for. But those who saw the servant suffering assumed that he had been smitten by God. That is that God was the one who struck him so severely as to be killed. And that final end was what the servant himself deserved from God. This is a great irony. The very ones who should be punished see the servant being punished and they do not realize that the servant is being punished for their sin. In verse 5, we not only see Isaiah making it absolutely clear that the servant was not pierced or crushed for his own sin, but Isaiah tells us what the servant's suffering accomplished. So verse 5, let's look at verse 5 again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Here it comes. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Even though we deserve punishment for our sin, we receive peace. This is not the kind of like, mmm, inner peace, inner peace. It's not that kind of peace that we're talking about here. This is not the modern spirituality of inner peace. Rather, this kind of peace that it's talking about is the peace between two parties who were at one time, uh, at one time enmity, at enmity with one another. That is, two parties that were enemies. The two parties are God and mankind. We cannot mend the relationship as mankind. We cannot mend the relationship between us and God on our own. Only God can and does mend it. And rather than us receiving the punishment for our own sin that we deserve, the servant is punished on our behalf. And his punishment brings peace between God and mankind and heals the relationship that mankind broke with God. I'm sure that we can all think of a relationship currently that we have in our lives that we wish was reconciled. Some estranged relationship that time cannot heal especially where there was one a wrong done on one side or the other. You think of a friendship where perhaps a used item was borrowed, but broken in the process and was returned to you completely unusable. And the friendship shouldn't be based on your stuff. But it just so happened that this situation led to a broken relationship. What if a third party who knew both of you well came along and paid for the repair with their own money at great cost to them in order to bring reconciliation this is similar to what the servant does. We are born as God's enemies because of our sin. And we rightly deserve punishment for our sin. And yet the punishment that we deserve was taken on by the servant so that we can be reconciled to God and have peace with him. So in verse, excuse me, in verse 6, Isaiah turns to a description of us, the transgressors, the sinners, the sick. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like a sheep wanders away from the flock, so we too have wandered away from God. Every person here today, every person, every born, and every person who will be born by nature does not seek God. And because of that, we are lost, like the sheep who has gone her own way from the flock. What does a lost sheep need? The lost sheep needs a rescuer. 
The, the sheep needs a shepherd to take the initiative to rescue the sheep. And it was God who initiated the rescue from sin. He initiated by sending the servant to take the punishment for our sin in order to bring peace between God and mankind. Like we've heard several times over the past few months, if you've been attending church, which I've been here a little bit less, but I still, be, I still continue to hear it, we contribute nothing to our rescue except the sin that made it necessary. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We cannot rescue ourselves. Not only did the servant suffer because of our rebellion and sin, he suffered unto death. That is, he suffered to the point to where he was put to death. So let's read verses 7 through 9. Read along with me as I read verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So moving to point 2b here, where the servant suffered to the point of death. In verse 7, we see how the innocent suffering servant was led to death and how he responded. Verse 7 says, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep who is silent. When it's getting a haircut, he opened not his mouth. He wasn't crying out. He wasn't shouting wildly. He wasn't resisting his oppressors. Rather, he submitted willingly to being punished for the sins of others. Right, can you imagine in your mind's eye a completely innocent person who's been convicted of a horrible crime and was sentenced to immediate death? What do we imagine that the innocent person is doing when they've been sentenced? Do we just imagine they're just being passively led away to their death? Of course not. Don't we imagine them pleading with the judge, pleading with anybody who will listen, screaming at the top of their lungs that they really are innocent? Don't we see them on our mind's eye physically struggling against their inevitable end of being taken away to the place where they're going to die completely against their will, objecting the whole way? That's how I imagine myself. If I'm the one being subjected to something like that, convicted as guilty, about to die for a crime that I didn't commit, but that's not how the, ser the, ser the suffering servant responded. How did the servant respond? Well, our passage, it tells us, it compares him to that of a lamb. We see the language of the lamb used here to refer to the servant. At this point in time, lambs had been used by the Israelites as one of the animals to sacrifice as a covering for sin for at least the previous 500 years. And by the time the gospel was were written, it was probably around at least 1,200 years that the lamb had been used in this way. In both the gospel of John and the book of Revelation, we see Jesus referred to as the lamb. Specifically, we read in the gospel of John that when John the baptizer refers to Jesus, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The image of the suffering servant being led away like a lamb would have had profound impact on John's hearers. Referring to Jesus as the lamb stirs up images in the minds of the people about the Passover lamb as well as the prophecy in Isaiah 53. Jesus did not come as a conquering king the first time that he came. 
He came as a servant to be punished for our sins so that we can have peace with God. He is God's lamb who would be sacrificed for our sin. The sin that Isaiah tells us that we deserve punishment for. In verse 8, the servant is cut off from the land of the living, it says. Verse number 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and he was cut off from the land of the living. His suffering for other sins unto death, excuse me, his suffering for other sins was unto death. And then in verse number 9, the servant is buried. Verse number 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There are two kinds of people referred to in verse 9. When the servant is buried, there's the wicked and there's the rich. He was with the wicked because he was treated like a common criminal. But he was with the rich, that is the honorable, in his burial because of his perfect innocence. He may have been executed like a common criminal, but he was not buried like one or left out to die like one. He was buried in an honorable way, like the rich were. What is going on here? Is this situation completely just out of control? Is this just another example of horrible things happening to an innocent person in a cruel world? No. We've already heard it a couple of times, hints about what's going on here, and now it's going to be made clear. We're going to understand the ultimate reason why this servant is suffering. He was not a victim. These were not random events that culminated in an innocent person's death. And the people who mistreated him were not in ultimate control of what was happening. There was far more to what Isaiah saw in his prophecy. This despised and rejected servant suffered for a purpose. And the purpose might surprise you. It was God's will that he suffer. The innocent suffer for the guilty. So let's read verse 10 together. Excuse me. Let's start in verse 10, and let's read through verse 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So looking at point 2C, we realize that it was God's will for the servant to suffer. And you may be thinking, but that isn't fair. The innocent suffering for the guilty A good and loving God would never allow such a thing, let alone will that the suffering happen. But that is exactly Isaiah's point. Our good and loving God sent the servant to suffer on behalf of the transgressors. And God willed for it to happen. That is, he planned and predestined for the suffering to happen. The word transgressor here can also be translated as the word rebel. The rebels deserve to die for their own sin. And the rebels had no mediator who could strike a deal for peace between God and mankind. So God sent a mediator in the form of a servant. But the rebels put the mediator to death. What a good and loving God should do at that point is to wipe out the rebels. But instead, what do we see God doing? 
in verse 10. Let's look at the last half of verse 10. When his soul, that is the servant, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Instead of God wiping out the rebels, God prolongs the days of the servant. But isn't the servant dead? He was buried with the wicked and with the rich. So what does it mean for God to prolong the the servant's days? It means that the servant will live again after dying. It means that God is going to raise the servant from the dead. Again, we're thinking back. This is 700 years before Jesus came. These are things that the people of Israel are hearing from Isaiah. We already see the end of the story. But I want us to get perspective and say, They didn't realize what was happening, but somehow the dead servant was going to be living again. So look at the first part of verse 11 again. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The anguish of his soul is talking about the servant's suffering unto death. How will he see, how can he see and be satisfied if he's dead? He won't be. Instead, he will be raised from the dead. And all of this is God's will. Okay, you may be thinking, so what? The servant is raised from the dead, but how are the rebels ever going to have peace with God since they should be wiped out? Well, let's read the rest of verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. The phrase here, by his knowledge, is best understood as meaning by the knowledge about him, or that is, through the knowledge about the servant. So Isaiah is saying that my servant will make many to be accounted righteous through the many knowing what the servant did, and he shall bear their iniquities. The only way for a rebel to have peace with God is through the servant, through knowing about the servant and through knowing the servant. And then we see that the mediation between God and mankind will be accomplished. The very end of verse 11, the will of the Lord shall prosper in the servant's hand. The servant will not suffer in vain, but he will accomplish God's plan completely. And then this section finishes with God speaking in verses 11 and 12. I want to start in verse 12, just to read it again. Therefore, I, this is God speaking. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here at the end of verse 12, we see that the risen suffering servant was the sacrifice and is now both mediator and high priest. As the sacrifice, he bore the sin of the rebels. As mediator, he now brings peace between God and the rebels. And as high priest, he now continually stands before God, satisfying God's wrath against the rebels so that the rebels can have peace with God. So then one of the questions we have to ask is who exactly are the rebels that Isaiah 53 is talking about? Is it just only talking about, is this only for the people who saw the servant actually suffer and die? The ones who rejected him and despised him. What God promised 700 years earlier through Isaiah is that the servant would bear the sin of many. That many would be accounted righteous because of the servant's death and resurrection. So do the transgressors, do the rebels include more than just that narrow set of people who saw the servant suffer that day? Well, we have a great example in the New Testament that shows us that the rebels do include more than just who saw the servant suffer. 
So if you would, turn to me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, New Testament, in the, in the Bible that's in front of you. In the little tray there, it's on page 916. We're going to start from verse 26, but I want to just say a quick word about the context of the story that we're about to read. So Acts chapter 8, at this point in church history, the suffering servant, who is Jesus, has already come. He's already suffered. He's already died. He's already been raised from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven. And we see that the suffering servant has become the reigning servant. And a Christian named Stephen has just been martyred for his testimony about Jesus. And as a result, a great persecution began among the church there in Jerusalem. And people were, the persecution caused many of the believers to be scattered out from Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 26. We're going to read from 26 to 40. If you would read along with me, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the book, the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep who was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which was his home. First, let's look at point number three. The suffering servant, who is now the reigning servant, sends out his own servants to share the good news that their sins have been punished and paid for. That God, that the justice that God demands is satisfied, and now they have a mediator if they will believe in him. God sends out his servants to proclaim the good news. God uses his word, that is the Bible, and uses your explanation about the Bible to bring about a response to the good news. Some people will reject, but some people will believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and God has chosen for the church, he has chosen for his people to be the means by which proclamation about peace Between God and mankind, he's chosen for that to be the means which the proclamation goes forward. And what a privilege 
it is to be used for that eternal purpose, that we are sent out as messengers. Dear believer, I want you to rejoice with me this morning in this, in this great gift of God's grace. And then my challenge for you specifically this morning is to make a list of people who you know have not yet come to believe in the servant and for whom you are regularly praying that they will believe. Here is a question for you. Do you make a plan each Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening when you look forward to the next week about how you can be intentional to connect with those who've not yet believed? We plan so many events that are based on the temporary things of this world. But when it comes to the events that impact eternity, do we find it easy to postpone them or to make excuses? I know that I do. I need encouragement from all of you to continue in the work of gospel ministry. I'm assuming that if I need encouragement, then you do as well. We are all sent out to proclaim the good news. We are the means that God has chosen for our friends and for our neighbors to hear the good news. So I'm asking you to consider how can you be intentional this week? And intentionality begins thinking through a rough plan about who you're going to connect with, when you're going to connect with them, what you're going to say when you do connect with them. Why not on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, spend just a few minutes thinking this week, who can I connect with? And what am I going to say? When am I going to connect with them? The reigning servant sends out his servants to share the good news with people who you know And he also sends us out to share with those who we do not yet know from peoples all over the world. The man mentioned here in Acts chapter 8 is from Ethiopia. He's not an Israelite. This is an amazing act of God's compassion. The man is reading the scroll of Isaiah. And imagine with me, when you're reading in your car, by the way, when back then, a long time ago, when people would read, they read out loud. You'd ever read privately to yourself. You would just read, you'd read aloud. And so this is why uh, Philip hears him reading. And so let's just imagine you're reading out loud your Bible, sitting in your car with the window down and someone comes up beside you and all of a sudden they're like, hey, do you know, understand what you're reading? You'd be like, that's kind of strange. Why are you coming up talking to me? I'm in my car. The Ethiopian man, he's in the desert, right? Philip should not be there. Except that, did you see it? an angel of the Lord told him where to go. It was a desert place. And the guy invites Philip to sit in his chariot. Must have been a pretty big chariot. I've always imagined chariots being kind of narrow, but it must have been kind of like a double wide chariot. That's what I'm thinking. Right? Philip explains the gospel and the Ethiopian man clearly believes because he asks to be baptized. And did you notice what was the passage that he was reading from? It was in Isaiah. It was Isaiah 53, what we read this morning about the lamb. Now the passage, verse starting from verse 32, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And beginning with this scripture, Philip told the man the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesies, foretells 700 years before his birth. Jesus is the lamb who takes away our sins. The entire Bible drives toward one singular message, that God has redeemed his people through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, our mediator. And now 
God sends out his servants across the globe to make his glory known. The Bible lays out the unfolding story of God's proactive work in redeeming people who completely do not deserve anything but his wrath. That includes me. That includes you this morning. I don't know, I'm not sure if you're convinced of that yet, but you don't deserve anything except God's wrath. In the servant's death, the punishment for sins is taken away. And in the servant's resurrection, eternal life that you and I do not deserve is offered to us. So I would implore you this morning, if you have not yet come to believe in Jesus, our servant, our mediator, repent and believe. If you have not yet believed and you go, I'm not sure if I want to believe this just yet. You're not quite sure I want to believe in Jesus as my savior, as my king. I would appeal to you to begin reading the Bible. Here's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, the Bible that's in front of you and the seat back that's in front of you, this is free. You can take this home. We would be more than happy for you to take it with you. And if you begin reading your Bible, And you begin to have questions like the man from Ethiopia. Perhaps maybe somebody will send uh, or God will send someone along in your car or wherever you're sitting on the day you're reading and say, hey, do you understand what you're reading? But if not, if God doesn't do that for you, if you have questions about what you read, there are multiple people in this church who would love to sit down and try to answer your questions about the Bible. For those of us who have come to believe in Jesus, God uses his word effectively in us and in others to awaken our minds to the reality and beauty of spiritual truth. This means first that we must be reading our Bibles on a daily basis and meditating on those truths to see in a fresh way the glory of our salvation. And then secondly, with these truths in our minds, there is every reason to start Bible studies with coworkers or to start reading the Bible with friends and neighbors. We have plenty of Bibles to give away. And so if you're a believer this morning and you say, Hmm, I know somebody who may not have a Bible. Take the Bible with you. Give it to them this week and ask them, when can we get together for us to read the Bible together so that we can just see what it says? The last time that I preached, I challenged you to pray that the word of the Lord would run and be honored here in Windsor and in the surrounding areas where you live. It's not just the teaching and preaching of the word of God, but also the reading of the word of God that is included in that challenge. So I would encourage you to be bold this week and to give a Bible to someone who does not have one and then ask them if you can, when you can read it together. I'm assuming through the power and work of the spirit that God has brought someone to your mind that you can be bold with this week to give them a Bible. So I would encourage you either take out your phone and write it down This afternoon, as you're making a plan to be intentional this week about who you're going to talk with, include that person to give them a Bible and ask them, hey, let's just get together and read the Bible sometime. Are you you interested in doing that? God's plan of salvation unfolds from Genesis 3.15 until the time that Jesus Christ came. And this unfolding, it includes Isaiah's specific prophecy about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 looks forward to a time, excuse me, it looks forward to the one who would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. The servant situation goes from bad to worse throughout Isaiah 53. Despised and rejected, not just for sin, but for other people's sins. He is killed and rejected. And just when it looks like there is no hope for the servant, 
We learn that the servant suffered on our behalf for our sins, but his suffering was God's plan. And the servant was raised from the dead. And now, as a rebel, we have a mediator. But the mediator wasn't only for the people of Israel. He is for every nation, for every people group, every language, every culture in the world. We see a clear example here in Acts chapter 8 of God's redeeming work among the different peoples of the world through his word. So let us be those who proclaim the good news about the suffering servant who is king of the nations. Let me pray for us as we end our time this morning. Father, we are thankful that you have been so clear with the message of salvation that in your word we can understand it accurately. More than 700 years before the suffering servant came, you told the people of Israel about it and yet their hearts did not receive Who had believed what Isaiah had said? He was in dismay. And yet we know that it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly come to believe that faith can be given to us. And so I pray if there is anyone here today who has not yet come to believe in Jesus as their King and as their Savior, that either you would cause them this morning to believe and for their hearts to be overwhelmed with thankfulness and goodness that they, don't deserve, that they deserve wrath and yet receive peace with you. And if they are not yet willing to receive that, God, I pray that you would give them a thirst for your word and they would read and understand. We pray that you would do this. And I pray, Father, for those who are believers this week, that you would give them boldness through the power of the Spirit, that they would be intentional this week to share with those to meet with those who have not yet come to believe, to be bold this week, especially, particularly, I suppose, this week, because we have a risen Savior that we are celebrating who is worthy of all of our effort. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.